Welcome everyone to um, Start Somewhere with me, Sarah Vaughan for Marie Claire. And today I am delighted to have my dear friend, uh, the extraordinary uh, plastic activist and just entrepreneurial genius, Sean Sutherland with me. Hi, Sean. How are you? Hello, Sarah. What an intro. Oh, my goodness. So, Sean, obviously, you know, you and I know quite a lot. We, we, we know each other really well. So, you know, this is, this is, you know, but for everybody else, you know, do tell us how you got started in life. You know, what, what, was, what were your beginnings? Because they are, they are absolutely fascinating and magical. Oh, right. Um, so my beginnings, I mean, they're really, in many ways, an unextraordinary childhood. I've got three brothers. My father's a doctor. Um, my, my, my mother was a teacher, um, you know, but, but it's only that later in life I realised that actually my mum has had a massive impact on me and she mm. continues to do so. And she had an extraordinary and interesting life. In the beginning of her life, she was a, a late convert to Catholicism. And then between the years of 20 and 26, which is, as we know, incredibly formative years for a young woman, she was actually a nun. And, uh, and and her whole story with her, I won't go into now, but it, seriously, somebody needs to make a film of her life. So growing up, myself and my three brothers, we did feel a little bit like The Sound of Music. You know, there was very little money to go around. And I'm pretty sure my mum did make clothes for us out of the curtains. And I definitely wore all my brothers' hand-me-downs. But we had, you know, I had a wonderful childhood, a wonderful childhood with loving parents and great brothers and um, and a lot of fun, a lot of energy. And then um, my, my two eldest brothers, super smart, you know, excelled at school. And then I came along at age 16, something happened. And I went from being this bright star, you know, for really doing well, everybody thinking, oh, she's going to walk these O-levels and she's Oxbridge material and everything else. And then I was really the first of our family to discover boys music and drinking and I can remember between my mocks and my actual you know exams I went into this downward spiral that was kind of invisible to me I I didn't I thought I was going to busk it and I didn't and it was also at a time where my father was leaving home and uh, so there was a you know a bit of trauma but actually none of that was the reason why I totally flunked my O levels and the main reason was I discovered going out and drinking lager and black can you believe it uh, and boys and listening to queen on my on my headphones on my homemade stereo um so i went from this you know uh, supposed academic star to somebody who um actually failed a lot of my o levels couldn't continue with my um my a level choices and ended up uh, doing a A-levels and secretarial course, which at the time was like a massive come down. But now I can't tell you how lucky it was. I learned to touch type super very, very early on. Um, and, and I still amaze my kids when I can be typing away, you know, doing an email w- whilst looking at them across my shoulder. And they're like, how can you do that? I said, Haha. It's because I failed my exams. Um, anyway, long, long, short, long, short. Uh, my first main real career really was in advertising, and this was in the early eighties. And so, so it was the, the 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 days of advertising where you went out to lunch on Friday and you didn't come back. And I spent five great years for a, in a fine uh, in a fast growing agency in Soho in London. It was my first job in London. I didn't grow up in London. I moved there in my very early 20s so I still get that buzz walking around I still think oh, I live in London 
you know, the best city, the best city in the world. I still believe that. Um, but working in Soho in the early 80s was really great fun. Um, but when I um, started to progress through the agency, I got to age 25 and I thought, I feel that I'm ready to leave and set up my first business. And I randomly chose one of the toughest, most competitive, um, certainly most exhausting, mercurial businesses in the world. <laughs> and I opened a restaurant in Soho. And this was the days when Lascargo used to be the place that everybody went. I used to sit in Lascargo and think, wouldn't this be a wonderful thing to do? Imagine creating this fantastic environment for people young and old to come. And it was the beginning of, of the, the whole wave of new British cuisine. Uh, and so we raised the funding um, and opened a restaurant, had an amazing um, chef who was premier sous chef at the Savoy, my restaurant manager, who was front of house at the Connaught. And we opened this restaurant called Sutherland's in Lexington Street in Soho, which was really the armpit of Soho. It was not the, <laughs> it was not the fancy Greek Fifth Street, Dean Street of, of Soho. Um, and that, I have to say, that business, which I ran for five years, that was the hardest business I've ever done in my career. Uh, and I learned so much through that because every single day is a new business pitch in many ways, you know, and the, the margins are so tight. We had 45 covers and we had nine chefs. So that gives you an idea of the, the, how the um, economics worked, that you had to be full most of the time to really even break even. Uh, and fortunately, in the, those early years, we were, because we won a Michelin star in our first year. We were the youngest team at that time to win a Michelin star. We brought, we were the first star to come back to Soho, really. So it was, it was a wonderful, terrible industry to work in. I loved it in so many ways. I loved, I was front of house. I enjoyed all of that. But many, many nights at two in the morning, I would lock that door and think, I quite hope this burns down overnight <laughs> and I never have to come back here again. And everything that you've ever seen about kitchen nightmares and all of those things, it is, everything is true. Um, but, but I loved it. And I fell in love with my restaurant manager. Yes, I was about to say. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, and so, you know, late, later on through that time, you know, anyone who works with their husband, with their partner, I have so much respect for because uh, I found that way too hard. And so I left and went back to my marketing roots and left Christian in charge there. And he's always stayed in, in that hospitality business. And in fact, next week, we have been married 29 years. Oh my so, goodness. Um, I know. I, I, I mean, it's unbelievable <laughs> to even say those words. It's longer than my own parents. And that, that always feels like a milestone. Wow. Um, anyway, I left and I set up um, with a, a friend of mine, Kathy Miller. We set up a, a design and branding agency called Miller Sutherland deliberately small we were both just turned 30 uh, and very focused on um, working in the kind of areas that we enjoyed and they were drink and beauty so we did a huge amount of work in the alcohol industry which we thoroughly enjoyed and a lot of work with people like Taylor's and Fonseca Port over in Portugal really enjoyed enjoyed all of that um, and then we also did a lot of work in the beauty business it, and through the time that we ran Miller Sutherland and we were fortunate enough to win a lot of awards um, as this small boutique design agency, we also went through our baby making years. Mm. And through that, we developed uh, a brand, a range, really. It wasn't even a brand. It were, they were products to help us with what we called the nine month stretch, 
with no commercial intent whatsoever. You know, this was just stuff to really help us. And we also used to do little things where we would invent brands for other people because uh, we became a place that Conrad, for example, would come and say, I want to do a bath and body brand. What should it look like? But then what should be in it? And in fact, could you even find the people mm-hmm. that could fill it for us? And ironically, if you look at Lush and the scale of Lush now and Mark Constantine, back then, Mark Constantine was the man that we would call down in Bournemouth and Poole and say, oh, could you fill this for us, Mark? Could we have another 500 bottles of this? And now you look yeah. at the extraordinary business, which I think is something like 1.4 billion now and everything that he has achieved. Mm. Um, and so long, long story short, I got involved in film production somehow, but you know, we carried on with the design agency. And then um, we, we came to a point where we realized that these products, these little pregnancy products, as we called them, really it was the first time those two words had been put together, pregnancy and skincare. And we, kept, we had so much reaction whenever we showed this to people that we decided that we would launch our own brand. So went to, had a lot of experience over in the US market, went over there, met with many buyers, people like Sephora, and they would all say the same thing. I love it. Pregnancy, skincare, so smart. We don't know where to put you because this category doesn't exist. And so we ended up almost by default launching in an unusual way and launching, for example, in John Lewis, we were in the nursery department, not mm. on the beauty floor. And that, in fact, became something that saved us when 2008 happened yeah. and, and the big recession and retail was decimated. And because we were so specific and we had a different kind of distribution model, that actually became the saving of us. And I ran that brand and we grew, we grew that business internationally with myself and three co-founders. Kathy was one of them, Tanya Casamini and Jill Dunk over in California. And we ran that brand for 10 years mm-hmm. and interestingly for me I've, I've always got this thing that I've kind of reinvented myself every seven years somebody <laughs> said to me once and, and, and I, I don't it was all it just happened but then somebody said you know you're a different person every seven years because every cell in your body as yeah, it constantly it. renews itself yeah and it takes seven years and you actually are a completely different person to the one that you were seven years ago and I thought ah oh, that makes sense then to me that I have kind of reinvented myself and de- definitely career-wise every seven years so I overextended uh, at Mamma Mio which was our pregnancy skincare brand um, and then it was through the latter stages of that as we were exiting that business um, that I got involved in uh, an organization called the Plastic Oceans Foundation based in Hong Kong as an advisor to the board there. And that really was a big epiphany for me with plastic. And prior to that, I guess the red thread that connects, because it sounds you know, very random from restaurants to design agency, to film production, to the skincare brand. And, and what was extraordinary to me was every time you start a new business, basically the same shit it's the same common sense that that really builds every single business Mm -hmm. and the red thread between all of it was in every market trying to find a niche that uh is really focused on needs and not trends you know pregnancy Mm -hmm. skincare that is the biggest skincare need the the biggest need your skin is ever going to have it it put 40 inches on your on your waist and then you lose it instantly that's a massive demand on your skin. So finding different niches in different markets and then communicating in a very um, connected, collaborative, empathetic way with your customers was something that, that I think was a pattern through everything that I've ever done. Mm. 
Yeah. And perhaps that is one of the reasons why what I'm doing now, we, I've, I've been able to bring some of that entrepreneurial, that business, that communication, that marketing experience into a completely different space yeah. of environmental but, activism. For sure. And I mean, this is, was a seminal moment for you, wasn't it? Kind of, if you like bumping into this film and actually seeing, you know, what the effects of plastic were. So do you want to talk a bit more about like, this is the moment sort of the scales fell from your eyes and you went, holy shit, you know, what are we doing? You you couldn't be more right because it is terrible for me to admit this right now. Uh, But through running Mamma Mia, we were so, we're a tiny brand in a massively competitive market. We're looking for how can we grow? How can we connect even closer with our customers? How, you know, what new products do we develop? new funding rounds, all of those things, sustainability was not on my list. Mm. And that sounds shocking to say that now, particularly as a pregnancy skincare brand where we should be thinking about next generation and everything. Um, But it was a very different time. Mm. And oh my goodness, you know, six years is is a massively long time in plastic awareness, let alone anything else. And it was only really when I got involved in the launch of the film A Plastic Ocean and meeting the scientists and the producers and the people behind that film, that definitely that was my epiphany of waking up to what we have done and what we continue to do, not just to our oceans, but to our, to our soil, to our air, to our water, to everything, and to the health of future generations. And so, yes, that, that was my epiphany, is this massive plastic sinner um, to realising what, what we had done. And then as I exited that business and then I, man- I consulted, as many people do, as many entrepreneurs do, went into a, a consultancy role for other entrepreneurial businesses, but I couldn't leave the plastic problem alone. Yeah. I kept going back to it. And then myself and my co-founder, Frederica Magnusson, crazy, amazing Danish woman, <laughs> decided, decided well, is there a way that we could create a different kind of organization. And it was actually at a screening of The Plastic Ocean. And I can remember the moment that uh, we were were showing this film at the Electric Cinema in Notting Hill. We had to bribe people to come and see this film. Who was interested in seeing a film about plastic in the ocean? What a downer. So we bribed people with dinner. We had mates, you know, rates of mates coming along. Fortunately, we had David Attenborough coming yeah, to this particular screen. Fortunately, <laughs> yeah, look, you know, obviously quite a draw for everyone because yeah. even before he made Blue Planet 2, which was, um, you know, it was before he'd made that, he's always been the legend that many people want to meet. Yeah. And it was in the print shop um, just on Notting Hill Gate where we were sitting there and we'd said to the Plastic Oceans Foundation, so, so what's the takeaway for people here? Mm. They're about to see a film that is going to make them feel scared and guilty and angry. And yet tomorrow they're going to push their trolleys through their local supermarket and they're going to fill, they're going to fill that trolley with plastic because they have no choice. And we were looking at the bits of paper that we were meant to be handing out for the Plastic Oceans Foundation, which were basically, you know, the three R's. And we were looking at these and just thinking, I'm sorry, but this is bullshit. And this means nothing to the man on the street. And we've been using these three R's for how many decades? And nothing has changed. We need a different message. And ultimately, we need choice. And that was the moment that Fred and I decided that we would launch our own kind of organization, which I I think of us really as pro-activists rather than activists, because it's all about positivity and choice and solutions and never about the problem. 
and we are because of you know our entrepreneurial backgrounds we're unusually pro-business in a world where many activists the model is you attack business from the outside what we wanted to do was really empower and ignite business from the inside and so we that's when we created a plastic planet uh and and the rest really you know in the last three years it feels like history but oh my god it's <laughs> has it really been three been, years Sean? I yeah can't. well yeah, yeah it is it's it's wow three, yeah three and a bit three and a half years um and 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 i think it's been you know i look at everything that i've done in in my career and this is what i've been built for everything all of my experience however random and disconnected it it may look it has built me for what i'm doing now and in just as as i was saying about this whole thing of understanding communication how to simplify message how to empower people how to connect with people um, you know, and how to really drive change within business and create opportunities through change. This is this is really what I've been built for. Uh, and then, the, the, of course, as, as you well know, our first campaign was the Plastic Free R campaign. And yep. that was really driven through, let's just give people choice. Because why? It's, it is like a human right. It's been taken from us. Like, you know, we're suddenly made aware of this disaster that our addiction to plastic has caused. And yet we don't have any choice about it because we, it's like we're forced fed plastic every time you go shopping. Um, and so we spent a year, we met with many supermarket bosses. We met you <laughs> along the way and Richard Walker, you know, he was the first supermarket boss to step up and say, that's it. It's going to be difficult. And I have no idea how we're going to do it, but within five years, we're going to take all plastic out of everything that we sell that is branded Iceland. Um, and th this was a time where you'll remember, and it's still going on. How many packs and pledges and promises have every big consumer brand, you know, the FMCGs, Unilever, Mondelez, P&G, everybody, all the big retailers, every single one of them has some kind of plastic pledge. And yet here we are three years now since Blue Planet 2 came out and the world woke up. And unfortunately, very, very little is changing. We're still at a place where we're talking words and we're not seeing action. Um, so the, the aisle opened in Amsterdam in February 2018. And that was an extraordinary moment, I think, because then the world was aware and feeling guilty every time they shopped because they were still filling their baskets full of plastic. But they were hearing about all these packs and pledges, but still frustrated because they knew that they were part of the problem and having that plastic guilt every time you came home. And then the aisle opened and it was a symbol of hope. And I think I did 55 media interviews in that day alone from CNN and Washington Post and New York Times and obviously Sky and the BBC and uh, the German broadcasters and Japan and Al Jazeera. And it was quite extraordinary. And I think it was, yes, because Higgerson did an incredible job, but it was also because it was the symbol of hope. And people wanted to believe that, the, that a better future was closer than we thought. And here was somebody actually proving it. And that really is the model through everything that we do at A Plastic Planet. We focus on solutions rather than the problem. We rarely would speak at an ocean summit because what's the point? Everybody knows that is preaching to the converted. And what we need to do is work with industry and work with organizations who want to change but don't know how to change and then champion those that are doing the right thing now so it's always about focusing on solutions rather than on the problem 
And would you like to outline some of the other other solutions you've come up with? Because we obviously talked about the, the plastic-free aisle that was launched in, in Amsterdam, but then you've also got the plastic-free mark and you, you've been calling for a lot exactly. of regulations. So, so give us a whistle-stop tour about the other extraordinary initiatives you have kind of under your umbrella. Yes, so we, we have, you know, our, our entire goal is to ignite and inspire the world to turn off the plastic tap. And then you look beneath that and think, so what are the levers of change? How are we going to make that happen when everybody is still talking about this, you know, smoke and mirrors of all we can just recycle? That's the answer. And that's absolutely not the answer. You know, the plastic recycling is actually going down. It used to be 9% of the world's plastic has ever been recycled. And new numbers that came out last week are looking like it's 7% now. So that is never, ever going to be the answer. It's a downcycled material. Instead, we have to turn off the tap. We have to do that at source. So those levers of change we look at, absolutely, we need taxation, we need legislation, we need severe policy change. And that is, that's the only way that industry are going to make it a have to rather than a nice to. So we do things like, you know, we, we have been lobbying the UK government for the last 18 months with an early day motion to ban the export of plastic waste to developing countries. And that is now embedded in our current environmental policy and we hope that that environmental bill would be passed in the very near future and our job now is to make sure that no country escapes that because right now the the waste industry has already predicted what's going to happen that this ban will go and in, come into force and they are now sending the majority of uk waste to turkey who has no known infrastructure for dealing with it only a couple of weeks ago i think radio 4 featured a, a big expose on the burning of UK plastic recycling on roadsides in the villages of Turkey. So this for me is the worst of waste imperialism we have yeah. to stop. In the UK alone, we still export over 60% of our plastic waste. If we had to deal with our own dirt on our own soil, we would most definitely turn off the plastic tap quicker. Mm. So we do things like that. The plastic tax, obviously, is very, very important that we create a level playing field for all these extraordinary new materials that we should be switching to. We have an incredible opportunity, particularly right now, coming out of this pandemic, to start to switch to materials that nature can actually handle. So we need to tax plastic because plastic is the most subsidized material in the world from the most subsidized industry in the world, the fossil fuel industry. It's extraordinary how many people don't, don't really connect the two. We're talking about this is a fossil fuel. This is a petrochemical that we were momentarily making into a thing, a bottle, a bag, a, a box, and then it will languish in the environment unless it is burnt forever. Mm. Uh, then, of course, we want to empower people to make better choices. And through our work with the Plastic Free Isle and then with Thornton Budgins, a, an amazing project with Andrew Thornton in North London, where we took over his supermarket for 10 weeks and we took 2,000 product lines plastic free and we continue to work with Andrew in his supermarket. And he's now introduced a zero waste area you know, with, with zero packaging and uh, you know, a really inspirational supermarket leader. Uh, and I'm so glad to see him getting the rewards and the business rewards, you know, the payback, the, the top line, bottom line. We have to have great business case studies for these. Mm -hmm. But through all of our work with supermarkets and materials manufacturers, we became very aware that there's a huge amount of confusion about what is plastic and what is plastic free. Because there are many materials out there that are like cellulose that can look like plastic, but actually it's derived from wood pulp. And most cellulose will simply compost down into the environment in a very safe and organic way. 
So how do we highlight those? And that's why uh, we launched the Plastic Free Certification Mark. And this is now currently, um, we're working with some 2,000 brands and businesses with their product lines to certify them plastic free. And this mark sits very proudly on the front of pack so that the shopper has a moment to be able to choose that product over a plastic alternative. And there are some great brands that you've got on already, like Tea Pigs, for instance. Do you want, do you, would you like to just talk about a few of the brands, the, the well-known household brands people? Exactly. Already... Yeah. You know, so Perkle Coffee, who have made, you know, them, their, their mantra is coffee on a mission. I think they were the first to really adopt um, fair trade. And now they are the first to carry the plastic free mark. And we have many amazing chocolate brands and snack brands. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's also a wonderful one called Juni, J-U-N-I. It's a cosmetic brand. And they sent me their lipstick the other day. And it's fantastic little aluminium cased lipstick. And when they asked the certification, it was interesting because we realized, hang on a minute, if we're going to say plastic free for lipstick, we have to make sure the lipstick it's plastic free, not just the packaging. Food and drink, you would expect that to be plastic free. Right. But when you're looking at cosmetics, personal care, you know, shampoos, lipsticks, there are a lot of plasticizers in those. Yeah. So we really dug deep and went through every single element of the ingredients list of that to ensure that it is also plastic free. And there are so many pioneering tend to be the new brands that are coming to market mm-hmm. that are doing the right thing in the first place but it's the big guys that we need to that we need to change because we're not going to move the dial on plastic production and the use of plastic and plastic pollution with with the little brands much as i love them as a you know an entrepreneur myself we have to work with the big guys and I guess this this is the moment, Sean, because we're rapidly running out of time, <laughs> as I knew we would, because you and I can talk about this for hours. <laughs> but you know, this really is. I mean, you've you've got you know the Marie Claire readers, you know, listening into this. What is the one thing that they can do to help stop this and 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 to really, you know, get plastic out of the system? What can they actually do to help? Because I think everyone's sitting there going, well, you know, I do my recycling. I do this. What what can I actually tangibly do to actually make a difference? I think we've got to be very careful of thinking that just recycling is is enough. And we, of course, we have to recycle. We have to recycle the materials that we know are going to be recycled. Mm-hmm. But we should all look in the mirror and tell ourselves the truth. We now know we're exporting our plastic waste. It is not being recycled. Less than ten percent of plastic is recycled in the UK. Less than five percent in the US. So this is the kind of um, greenwashing that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, recycling is, is the fig leaf of consumerism. It is mm-hmm. the guilt of Pisa. It is not the answer. So we need to be just a little bit more angry about this. We need, to, we need to demand some more facts. We need to talk to our local councils and say, what is exactly happening to my plastic waste that I am paying my taxes for you to deal with? I think we we all need to realize as well that, of course, of course, don't use any more plastic bags. Of course, use a refillable cup. Of course, don't buy plastic bottles of water, apart from anything else. As part of the Plastic Health Coalition, I know way too much about the impact on human health that our addiction to plastic is causing. And that's that's a whole podcast in itself, isn't it? It is. Um, but, uh, but, I, yeah, but never forget the power of the purse. And so many big businesses will say to me, when, when our consumers, when our consumers want it, that's when we'll change. And I remember, 
I think you might have been with me when we went to see Amazon many years ago and they said <laughs> they said when the public demands it we'll because we were saying put a plastic free filter on Amazon job done you'll create the plastic free aisle digitally it could be amazing and their reaction was when when the public demand it that's when we would do it we need to demand it we need to be vocal we need to stop uh, imagining that we can recycle a way out of it and I think we need to recognize that each each and every one of us, we have so much more power than we think. Yeah. And through all of this, stop talking about the problem and start talking about solutions. Fantastic. Sean Sutherland, thank you so much. Um, take huge care and see you very soon uh, for a next instalment. Bless you. Take care. Thank you for everyone for tuning in and for listening today. Mm-hmm.